0: Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really great to have you here. It's time for another audio adventure. This time around I'm giving the podcast treatment to a story I published a while back about a beloved Spielberg film, my mental health, and what it means to never put on a life jacket again. Let's get into it. Here we go. It's Mad C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really wonderful to have you here. So we're going to try something a little different again today. This is a little bit like when I, I don't know, a month or so ago did the Next Stop adulthood thing with my friend Barry Hummel and we did a little immersive sort of this American lifestyle thing. This is going to be a little similar to that, I guess. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, I think it's going to be fun. I think it's a great way for me to kind of explain a couple things about myself and maybe maybe your situation too. A uh, couple little housekeeping things before we get rolling. Number one, uh, thanks as always for the support. I, I cannot do this work without you. It means so, so very much. Uh, things have been well in my world. I had a really marvelous weekend um, with uh, my very some of my very, very best friends in the entire world. And um, we took a... Basically, a just a really quick weekend up north to my family cabin, which I'm fortunate enough to have access to. And we got up on a little private lake, and I got out and did some fishing. I caught absolutely nothing, um, but I went out on the boat two or three times, and um, it was absolutely spectacular uh, view and weather. And I'll be I'll be sharing some stuff from that soon. But it was just a really wonderful way to refresh. Um, my friend Pete Dominic says this all the time, but uh, get out and get yourself some nature. Get, get out and uh, go go see some of the beautiful natural world around you. Take a walk in the woods. It's good for you. Uh, it certainly was good for me. Um, all right, back to work. Uh, so stick around. have a show coming up on June 3rd over at the old Tip Top Deluxe in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So if you're in Michigan, specifically on the west side of the state. Make sure you're headed over for that. We've uh, got a big bill for that one. I do still have some house dates left to fill on the tour. Unfortunately, we have not made a ton of progress since last week. I've got some angles that I'm working on, but I still could really use some help. Four spots. Here's what Here's what I could use your help with. July 10, in or around Asheville, North Carolina. July 11 in or around Athens or Atlanta, Georgia July 13 in or around Memphis or Nashville, Tennessee and July 15 in or around Indianapolis, Fort Wayne or Chicago. Um, again, you can take a look at those and you can kind of get some more information on what it means to host and, uh, quite frankly, how easy it is to put that together. Um, So those are the four dates that I need to fill. If you know anybody in those areas, boy, I sure could use your help. This could be uh, something as simple as a deck, a patio, a backyard, a garage, a driveway, a basement. Maybe you've got a little business or your neighbor owns a coffee shop or your buddy's got a record store. All we really need is about 20 people and uh, a good time. And I'll take care of the rest. All you got to do is just give me a space to hang out and maybe bring some friends and uh, we'll have a party. And it'll be a lot of fun. It's going to be really, really special. So if you could help me out with that, I really, really would appreciate it. On to more happy news. Instead of talking about the dates we haven't filled, let's go ahead and plug those dates that are full. I know this is a lot of self-promo and I'm super uncomfortable with it. Pardon me for a water break. Mm. Wow. You probably wanted to hear that, but boy, I needed that. The old throw was getting dry. Okay. So here's what we got. Let's talk about the dates that I do have. These are actually on sale now. So if you're out there in the Eastern half of the United States and you hear your area come up, you can go ahead and go get tickets. Here we go. June 29, Lansing, Michigan. June 30, Detroit, Michigan. July 1, Pittsburgh, PA. July 2, Syracuse, New York. July 3, Rome, New York. July 5, East Hampton, Massachusetts. July 6, Kingston, New York. July 7, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. July 8, Washington, D.C. area. July 9, Charlotte, North Carolina, July 10 and 11 I mentioned already I need hosts for those in Asheville and Athens. July 12 I'll be in Knoxville, Tennessee. July 13th still looking for something around Nashville or Memphis. July 14th I will be in Lexington, Kentucky. And on July 15th I'm still looking for a homebound show in uh, preferably in Indy or Chicago. So if you're in any of those areas, tickets are on sale now. You can go over to com slash house shows and you can pick up tickets. Uh, you can even go find me over on Eventbrite. Of course, you can find me on all the socials Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. I, I have a TikTok for this thing, but I have done zero with it. I don't even, I that means that the Chinese government probably has all my debt and I've gotten no benefit out of it. I, I don't know how to do this stuff, people. If you do and you want to help, boy, I sure would love it. So come on by. Uh, so anyway, I'm super excited about the house show tour. I I, like it's, it's a little more than a month away and I still can't really believe that it's happening. Like this is just, I have wanted to do a tour like this my whole life and it's really incredible that you guys are helping to sort of make this dream come true. Um, this is sort of a weird little exercise in whether or not Fitzgerald was right that there are no second acts in American lives. We're going to see if Maddie C can prove Scotty wrong. Um I also wanted to mention that I've got the debutant darling series and I am working on installment number 2. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet or when it's going to be published, but it's going to be soon and I think it's going to be pretty sweet. But if you've got an idea for your favorite debut album by a band, I would love to talk to you about it. Maybe you want to write an essay, maybe you want to have a conversation, maybe you want to do something for the pod. Let's find a way for you to share your favorite debut record here at What Am I Making. Hit me up. You can email me at phonafor at gmail.com. You can find me through com and email me there. You can find me on all the socials. You can hit me up there. Or you can email me directly through the whatamimaking.substack.com uh, portal. You can hit me there. Uh, don't forget also, get over on Notes on Substack. That's a really cool little site. It's a great Uh, sort of social media tool I'm hearing about a couple of other things that are kind of building too that are going to be a replacement maybe hopefully for Facebook and Twitter because those places are really getting kind of gross Um, but again, you know you got to get out there so uh, I got to plug myself I got to do my thing but I also want to find I want to find other people and the best way I've been able to do that in the last year or so is I, I honestly believe and it sounds like I'm plugging them but I'm not I really like Substack Notes. I don't I don't use it as much as I used Facebook and Twitter. But honestly, that's probably a really good thing. I'm using it less. Like I sit down and I use it for a few minutes once a day. Maybe that's how we're supposed to be using it instead of being on it for, I don't know, 12 hours a day. Again, like Pete says, get out, get yourself some nature. All right, let's get into the uh, the main event here. I'll be honest, I I hate explaining my mental health journey to people. I I hate explaining it. It might seem weird since I spend so much of my time here and so much of my energy talking about the issue of my mental health. I don't mean talking about it. I'm willing and often happy to explore my own mental health. Sometimes maybe too much. But exploring and explaining are different things. Explaining my conditions and my struggles most of the time is not an exercise that improves my state of mind. It's usually just a a resuscitation of justifiers in simplified terms to make the listener feel more comfortable, all while trying to prevent making myself seem like a complete and total lunatic. And sure, we as a society are starting to talk more openly about mental health. And as those conversations have happened and become easier and more productive, The vast majority of folks out there are loving and they want to help. But even our most ardent supporters are going to waver at least a little bit in the face of these conditions. I mean, any of us who suffer from this waver on a daily basis. Surely those who love us and who are following along and who are trying their damnedest to help support us in the deepest and darkest moments. And then there are those people who don't understand. They just don't get it. And then there's everybody in between. Analogies are a tool that I use to explain my feelings or teach a lesson, or maybe even try to address a problem with someone. They're always bouncing around in my brain for whatever reason. Sometimes I think that the idea of parallel ideas with a common purpose feels a little bit like magic. And using art and music and cinema is another way that I have used analogies and metaphors to sort of carve out my own identity and a viewpoint of what I believe and what matters. And that's a lot of what I talk about and what I do here at the Substack. And this week's podcast is designed to be sort of a combination of all of those elements. It's built around an essay that I published at the beginning of April that uses a scene from the film Jaws to better explain my struggles with depression and anxiety. Talking about my mental health can be exhausting self-indulgent, and even counterproductive. Stories like this one often seem like the best way that I can find to explore my own mental health while also allowing the reader or the listener to explore my mental health and perhaps their own along with me. So, here's a little glimpse at how I once again used a piece of art to better understand my own self. It's also one of the best ways that I have found to help you understand what my struggle is, and maybe understand yours a little bit better as well. I was recently asked what my favorite Steven Spielberg film was. It was a casual conversation with a few friends, but it was far from the first time that I had ever pondered the question... Hell, it wasn't even the first time I'd had this conversation with most of the people in that room. The unsexy answer is it's a tie between two films. Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws. Forced to choose one or the other at any given moment, I chose the latter. In my mind, I could have said either title and it would have been equally as genuine in my soul. If I had been asked to pick my favorite scene. ...from a Steven Spielberg film, it would have been an absolute no-brainer. Quint's story of his time on the USS Indianapolis would be my final answer, Regis. It's a superb piece of acting and storytelling that is done in the simplest of ways. A man tells a harrowing tale of survival from a small room in a small vessel... Adrift on a vast sea. He never stands. He never raises his voice. He directly and succinctly relays the gruesome details of his ordeal in the water as he survived. As nearly 800 of his shipmates were devoured by sharks in the waters around him. More than once while he relays this awful epic... He chuckles. For three and a half minutes, we are allowed to bear witness to the might of direct and honest storytelling with nowhere to hide. Brody and Hooper are transfixed by what they hear. In that room, they are our eyes and our ears. We are in turn them as we sit in our living rooms or stream from our iPads and listen with rapt attention and full hearts, all while Quint tells us about his friend, Herbie Robinson, a baseball player from Cleveland, whom he found bitten in half after he mistakenly tried to waken him up. Everyone I know who enjoys movies loves this scene. While I loathe the idea of defining artistic perfection, if there is a test case the perfect monologue in a film, this one takes all of the boxes for me. None of those reasons, though, are why this is my favorite scene from a Spielberg joint. It's not even why it's my favorite cinematic monologue, probably. When I hear Quinn talk about the USS Indianapolis, the Sharks mean something different. They're a manifestation of my mental illness. And there I am in the water with Herbie, and Quint, and all of those other stranded sailors terrified just waiting to be rescued. In my waters, the sharks are depression, anxiety, crippling self-doubt, and ADHD. Immediately before Quint begins his tale is almost as important as the actual story itself. After having spent the entirety of their daylight hours tracking the shark and affixing the giant fish with three barrels to keep it near the surface of the water, our heroes retire to the interior of the cabin for food and refreshment. The following few minutes are some of the funniest moments in the movie, and it's already a terribly funny film for a thriller. Fairly drunk and boisterous, things quickly devolve into a pissing contest between Quint and Hooper as they compare their scars with each other. They show off bull shark wounds, lesions from threshers, and even a bump on the head from a rowdy St. Paddy's Day in Boston some years before. After much back and forth, and much more drinking, Hooper offers us, quote, The creme de la creme. He unbuttons his shirt and then dramatically points to the center of his hairy chest and says... Mary Ellen Moffat. She broke my heart. The entire room erupts in laughter. I've seen it a dozen times or more. I know it's coming. And it still always brings a chuckle. As the laughter dies, Hooper notices a mark on Quint's arm and remarks, Hey, what's that? After a little bit of cajoling, Quint explains to Hooper that it was a tattoo from the USS Indianapolis. The mood in the room changes instantly. It's obvious that Hooper is aware of the legend of the USS Indianapolis. His smile quickly fades. He falls silent. His frame becomes small and still. He says, You were on the Indianapolis? And Chief Brody replies, What what happened? In this moment, Spielberg allows us to watch this play out through the eyes of Chief Martin Brody. Quint has lived it. Hooper knows it. We, along with Brody, are clueless. As the details of that gruesome experience are laid bare in Quint's tale, we are given flashes of reactions from both Brody and Hooper. At one point, they even make eye contact to emphasize a particularly harrowing moment. Other than those few cutaways, the entire scene is fixed upon Robert Shaw's brilliant performance. These are the basic concepts of storytelling and filmmaking done at the very highest level. There are no intricate set pieces, no elegant costuming, no CGI, no showy acting, no special effects. While few of us have hunted a shark, we have all been in some version of that room. The fact that Quint's monologue arises out of a moment of hilarity and a zest for life makes it all the more an apt way to describe how quickly depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses can swoop in for some of us. In this case, it takes nothing more than a scar from a tattoo removal in the right moment to change the direction of the emotional river. The simple mention of that mark on Quint's arm sends us from laughing at Hooper's broken heart immediately into a life jacket in the Pacific Ocean trying to keep the sharks at bay. When I watch this scene now, I view it as a metaphor for my own mental illness. I am Quint describing my sharks, when they come, and how I try to fight them off. In my cabin of the Orca, I have a whole bunch of Matt Hoopers that are aware of the story to varying degrees. Perhaps they have been in these same waters. Maybe they've just listened and are working hard to understand what I'm suffering through and how they might be able to help. There are also a number of people in my life who take on the role of Chief Brody. They're well-meaning people who have largely had the incredible good fortune to never experience any of these mental health challenges. Most of them, like Chief Brody, are interested and curious to hear the story, but they don't have any clue what is really going on. These are folks who have never heard the story about these sharks, never had to swim in these waters. It is a difficult story to tell, and as I have mentioned, one that gets exhausting to tell. I'm still learning all the plot lines and character motivations of my own inner monologue and story. All I ask from the folks in the Chief Brody camp is that they sit and listen to Quinn tell the story. And I'll explain it along the way as best I know how.
1: Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. He was coming back. The island of Tinian Delady just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. Vessel went down in 12 minutes.
0: Vessel went down in 12 minutes. Until that Japanese submarine fired a torpedo through the hull of the USS Indianapolis. It was full speed ahead and all systems go. Yet once the explosion occurred, the nature of the mission changed completely. It was no longer about returning to base in secret to celebrate the delivery of the bomb and the possible ending of the war. It became nothing more than basic human survival. Depression and anxiety can creep up at a moment's notice. Sometimes I can sense their presence in the area for hours, days, or even weeks before they attempt to launch their torpedoes. Other times they arise from the depths in deadly silence to strike without warning. Whether I know it is coming or not, if the targeting is accurate and the course correct, those torpedoes will explode into the side of my hull, and as the vessel shakes, I will begin to hunt for life rafts, life jackets, and the exits. It's hard for me to find my balance. Within minutes or sometimes even seconds, I am in the water with Quint, floating, and paralyzed
1: didn't see the first shark for about half an hour tiger 13 footer you know you know that when you're in the water chief you tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail Well, we didn't know which our bomb mission had been so secret no distress signal had been sent They didn't even list as overdue for a week.
0: Because no one was aware that the Indianapolis had been torpedoed. There was no one coming to the rescue. The crew were left to fend for themselves in the cruel arms of the Pacific Ocean, unaware that no help was on the way. Even the people in my life that love me, understand, and support me fully are surprised sometimes when I share stories of the struggles I have with my own mental health. I am an outgoing, talkative person with a lot of energy and a pretty great sense of humor. In my healthy moments, I have the assets to be a great deal of fun to hang out with. In fact, I am a blast when I feel good. People see that side of me and sometimes only that side of me and then they find it surprising when I tell them about my challenges. A friend or a relative might say, but you were so great yesterday. You were laughing and having a good time. I didn't think you seemed down at all. The truth is I was well enough in that moment to be what you think of as the real Maddie. I love that Maddie, he's my favorite. I wanna be like him more often. That's the Maddie I want to share with people, but he's not the only member of our crew. Sometimes that Maddie is nothing more than a mask I have to wear to make it through the day, the hour, or even just that one interaction. Wearing that mask can often lift me out of a funk. If I feel a bit crappy and can muster the energy to get out of the house to spend time with people I care about or engage in an activity that makes me feel good, I find my spirits are lifted and I can pretend less in that version of myself. Other times, I cannot muster the energy to make that effort. Even worse, there are moments when I do summon the courage and the ambition to go out and try to course correct. And I feel no improvement. Worse yet, I make that effort and continue to slide further backwards. Here come the sharks.
1: Very first slide, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle. Like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo and the idea was Shark comes the nearest man that man he starts pounding and hollering and screaming. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark he looks right into you. Right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you.
0: Even when I know that depression or anxiety are lurking near me, I'm not always able to discern if they are poised to strike with immediacy, or if they're just churned in the waters to look for the weak spot to establish the best point of attack. And the threat around me might feel hazy or undefined, but the presence, it's palpable. And when the bite comes, there's often a searing clarity to both the size and the variety of shark that has placed its razor like jaws into my being on this, my voyage of the USS Indianapolis. And when that bite comes, my version of pounding and hollering is a combination of regular talk therapy, medication, daily practices, and regular engagement with art and creativity like this. Much of the time, those things can help me holler and pound enough to convince the shark to go away, and sometimes,
1: they're not. And those black eyes roll over white and then, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. know by the end of that first dawn lost a hundred men I don't know how many sharks maybe a thousand I don't know how many men they average six an hour on Thursday morning chief I bumped into a friend of mine Herbie Robinson from Cleveland baseball player bosom's mate I thought he was asleep I reached over to wake him up Bobbed up and down in the water, just like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist.
0: Sometimes it takes hours or even days for my ocean to turn red. In other moments, there is a crimson hue to the water that coincides perfectly with the first sensation of the jaws tearing into my psyche. Depending on the variety of shark or the length from the tail to the dorsal, I may bleed for days or weeks before ever being aware of it. It often ends when I finally awake to the fact that I, like poor Herbie Robinson, have been bitten in half below the waist. Sometimes I am awakened by a loved one, and when they see me bobbing up and down like a kind of top in the water, they offer some perspective and some support. And then I might be able to begin to re-emerge and transform back into that cooler version of Matty C. we talked about earlier. Increasingly, I'm learning more and more to do this for myself. It is difficult, but worthwhile work. And it is far less than 100% effective.
1: Noon the fifth day, Mr. Burry, Lockheed Ventura. So she swung in low and he saw us to the young pilot, Lunt younger than Mr. Hooper anyway, he saw us and he come in low and three hours later a big fat PBY comes down and start to pick us up you know that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn.
0: There's a certain form of terror that arrives for me every time I start to feel myself getting better after a particularly difficult stretch some cynical sector of my brain is always dubious when I start to feel good when I start to engage with life more fully. Much like Quint waiting for his turn, that is the time at which I feel the most frightened. The section of my brain is certain that I will begin to climb back up into full life only to realize I hadn't yet made it to the rope ladder for my turn just yet and there they are. The sharks are back and they've brought friends. There's chum in the water in the form of the overwhelming shame that I feel for thinking I might be healthy again. I was not healthy. And now, a feeding frenzy is likely to commence at any moment. I may have been floating in this ocean for days, weeks, or even months by this point of a depressive episode. Each series of stretches of depression and chronic anxiety flare-ups and panic attacks, no matter now that I can see the PBY, I'm absolutely terrified. He won't wait for me. If he flies away, I'll never make it. Most of the time he waits, but not always.
1: I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out of the sharks took the rest June the 29th, 1945. Anyway. I'm
0: pretty sure what Quint means when he says I'll never put a life jacket on again is that given that choice, he'd rather drown. That's certainly never been my preference. I like breathing. I like dry land. I'm working so very hard that I can live my days without needing to always be looking for the sharks. Until that moment arrives, if it ever does, I'm finding a way to holler and scream Pound my way out of these waters when I am tossed into them. Moreover, I'm doing my damnedest to stay on dry land. Or at the very least, lash myself to the railings to stay upright. And inside of the vessel. After Quint's monologue, the quiet feels deafening and heavy. So Hooper begins to quietly sing, Show me the way to go home. I love Robert Shaw's wry smile as he recognizes the tune. It's a moment of pure joy. For a moment, hope and happiness start to fill that room again. Boom, boom. And just like that, the shark has returned. He's banging on the door, demanding their attention. The fun stops, the singing ends, the deafening silence returns and the battle of wills commences. The whole scene is a brilliant, brilliant moment from top to bottom. It sits as a central spot in a film that rightly deserves to be called an American classic. Part of the reason the film is so terrifying and effective is because the shark didn't work. Most of us have heard by now the story, but during filming for Jaws, the mechanical shark regularly malfunctioned or just failed to work altogether. As such, the actual shark is seen much less in the film than it was originally intended. This mechanical obstacle led to a much better film than it was likely planned out to be, as Spielberg was able to lend a true terror to the shark sequences because the threat remained unseen but felt throughout so much of the picture. Critics and film scholars will often rightly point out that Spielberg took many of the techniques he'd seen and learned by watching Hitchcock films to craft a film around this story, and some flaky, mechanical gray white. Like Hitchcock, Spielberg gave us the darkness, the bangs, the beeping light on the barrel as the shark swims closer to the orca. Instead of jump scares and loud shocks, we are allowed to see the threat encroaching ever closer to us in the quiet darkness. That beeping light, the only tangible sign of danger lurking just outside the window. That invisible shark in the waters out there banging against the sides of my vessel is depression, and anxiety, and self-doubt, and ADHD. Yeah, I have a life jacket on. Yes, I've strengthened my muscles to pound and holler better than most. No. I am not immune to all of the other trials and tribulations that come just from navigating a life on this planet. Even if you cannot hear the pounding and the hollering, I still have to do it much of the time. You may never see me treading water furiously to help keep myself afloat, but many days I have to paddle all day every day with my arms and legs to stay afloat. Maybe your life jacket works better than mine. Lots of folks, it holds them up just fine, and they don't even have to paddle. Maybe my jacket has a leak. Pretty regularly, I have to tread water to get where others might simply feel at rest as they float along in their day. Here I am, treading water, paddling, climbing, hoping, and singing, Show me the way to go home seeking happiness and peace while adrift on the sea of life. So there it is, another little audio experiment. What would you think of that? Please let me know. Get a hold of me over at the Substack. Again, it's whatamimaking.substack.com. Let me know what you think. Get a hold of me on the socials. I'd really like to hear if you would like to hear more of this kind of stuff. I'd like to know from you if this is interesting. I think it's it's cool. I think it's an interesting way for me to sort of share this material a couple of different ways and maybe more people hear it and see it. But let me know what you think. Uh, as always, I cannot do this work without your help. I gotta have some support. So if you haven't had a chance to make a paid subscription yet, to make, to sign up for a paid subscription yet, I sure would appreciate it. Uh, you can go to whatamimaking.substack.com, sign up for monthly, yearly, or founding memberships. I gotta have your help so that I can keep spending time on this thing. Thanks again to everybody who's already supported. Uh, Please make sure that you're uh, rating, liking, and reviewing this pod wherever you get your pods. Make sure you're sharing this with friends. Again, let me know what we should talk about. Uh, This is all big stuff and I love it. And uh, I'll be back real soon with another conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed this little little sidetrack. Uh, I have some other little uh, weird audio experiments coming soon, so buckle up, friends. It's going to be fun. Thanks again to my buddy David Baldwin, as always, for the theme music. And uh, I'll see you again very soon, my friends. I love you. Bye bye. brrrr